When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Chancy, and today's another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. Today, I've got a couple of legal professionals with us um, from the Cueto Law Group. First, I've got Santiago Cueto, um, one of, obviously one of the named partners. And then bringing with him today is Davey Carcasson, who specializes in Swiss law. And I don't want to go too far into it because I know they have some international specializations. So if you're doing cross-border transactions or you're a global company, you're definitely going to want to pay attention to what we're talking about here today. Uh, I think you'll find some really interesting nuggets in there. So gentlemen, thanks very much for uh, for being on the show. Thank thanks so for having us, Matt. Absolutely. Now, Santiago, on the pre-call, you talked a little bit about, you know, your law firm, your area of specialization, and the fact that you're board certified. You know, I think everybody's heard that term before, but lean into that a little bit and help us understand what that really means. Well, sure. It's just a fancy term to say that we're experts in international law. We're only one of a handful of maybe 50, less count, out of 100,000 attorneys across the state that can call themselves experts in international law. What does that mean? Well, we help businesses do business globally, whether it's a dispute across borders or a transaction across borders, we're the experts that can help companies do that. Very nice. Very nice. Um, and, and I guess geographically, it really doesn't matter. Are there some countries that are easier to do business with, some that are more complicated? Oh, that's a great question. You know, on my, on my, uh, my list is uh, Brazil is very difficult to do business with. Uh, the World Bank comes out with an ease of doing business index every year. Brazil is always kind of towards the bottom because there's so much red tape and bureaucracy. Mexico is another one that we have trouble working with. And certainly you can imagine Russia, you know, with the things going on there. But those are kind of three countries I stay away from, apart from the ones that are obviously on the embargo list of the United States. Uh, The easiest ones, for instance, Singapore routinely comes out at the top. Uh, They're very open for business as well as the Scandinavian countries. Interesting. I would, yeah. you know what? I wouldn't have thought with as many Brazilian tourists that come, you know, to the United States or specifically Florida on a regular basis and Mexico being our next door neighbor right next door, you wouldn't think that they would make it so complicated to do cross borders business. Yeah. It really can be difficult, particularly with enforcing uh, cross border uh, judgments. We always recommend to include in your contracts international arbitration clauses. We have 192 countries that have signed on to it. That if you have a judgment in one country or an arbitration award, rather, you can walk that into the other country. Most of them have signed on to what's called the New York Convention. That's a treaty that says, hey, if you got this arbitration award, then you can walk it into pretty much any country as long as you follow due process. Try that with the U.S. judgment and try enforcing that in China. Try enforcing that in Mexico or Brazil or any other country. They're going to give you a hard time. So, you know, a big tip to your listeners is if you can have an international contract, always include an international arbitration provision versus a litigation provision. A litigation provision, you'll certainly get a judgment, but again, it's going to be incredibly difficult to enforce that around the world, whereas an arbitration clause will make it much more easier to walk that in. You just meet the minimum requirements, and that's going to be enforceable as if it was uh, a judgment rendered by the courts of that country you're trying to enforce it. It's a very powerful mechanism. Davey, you have, a, you have something to follow up on that? Sure, yes. There's also as well uh, the, the pros of having an arbitrational clause is that the dispute is private. You don't want to have the name of the companies to be public in state courts. Certainly when you Google the, the company, you can find out this company is getting sued or this company is suing so. 
So you don't want to have that reputation. Arbitration is sort of protecting, you know, giving a layer to have a private procedure instead of having a wide open uh, to the public procedure, which is really useful in certain ways. And they're a lot faster. I mean, they can be more expensive, but they're a lot faster to solve. Uh, this, is, uh, this is true for, I would say, uh, local arbitration, but international arbitration takes a, a little longer to the discovery request that we have to ask to the other party. And sometimes the documents, there's so much documents and there's so much laws between countries that are intertwining with each other. So that's why it takes a little longer in that perspective. But at least, like Santiago said, once you have an award, you don't have to go and fight in state court in that specific country. You already have a, like a, an award an arbitration. So basically what you have to do is hire an attorney in that country and just enforce it. And that's that simple. And if that country does not enforce it, go around the country where that specific company has assets and force it over there. And it's a win for you. It's You have a much more wider perspective to reach out, to have a remedy through international arbitration than through state court or national courts of the countries. That's interesting. So I guess based on the treaty, the international treaty that you talked about for the arbitration provision, so if one country I have bad dealings in, but there's another company country that's also a party to that agreement, but we know that counterparty or that other business has assets in the other country, you could actually collect them there, even though it originated potentially in another place. Right, right. That's exactly what's going on. And also as well, I want to point out something. When you do a, an investment, uh, a cross-border investment, Normally, sometimes countries sign on the treaties called bilateral investment treaties. And sometimes those contract agreements don't tend to have an arbitration, but that doesn't mean that the tribunals like ICSID, ICC, or AAA that use the rules of SCDR don't have jurisdiction over the issue at stake. So, for example, um, there was a case that was used to get involved as a law clerk, which uh, right now it's online, so we can talk about it. Um, and I was involved into uh, Jamaica versus Dominican Republic well, under um, Mr. Leachin, uh, which was a Portland holding. Well, they, they were suing uh, Dominican Republic because there was a government misappropriation under the investment. So we actually called the investment treaty, the bilateral investment treaty, to gain jurisdiction over the issue. And Dominican Republic was fighting on jurisdiction, saying there's no jurisdiction. The tribunal does not have jurisdiction to hear the issue. But in the end, they, they prevailed. I think uh, this, this law firm prevailed on the jurisdictional issues, and they found out that actually they are actually binded by the treaty. So sometimes the host state can consent by being binded by treaty to which indirectly uh, create an ar- international arbitrational clause within the contract without having them sometimes. And the tribunals will have jurisdiction to hear about these cases. So you're going to see this most of the times. For example, like one of the uh, treaties that actually recently was um, passed was USMCA, which is the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which replaced uh, actually the free trade agreements between the US and and Canada, the North Atlantic uh, trade agreement most of the time. And it replaced it. Well, that's an FTA. That's a free trade agreement under that treaty the ICC would probably have jurisdiction to hear the case. So if there's, a, um, let's say, a company trading from the U.S. with Canada, then and it has a breach of contract or an issue in the trades or it could be a government misappropriation, the, the tribunals under that specific treaty will have jurisdiction to hear the case. So even though the like there's no international arbitrational clause, However, it's still preferable that we add an international arbitrational clause to make it clear to the parties so jurisdiction is not a dispute. That's exactly what we want, uh, we want to do. So you want to take away the argument of jurisdiction so it's less longer and there's no opportunity for the other party to dispute jurisdiction over the tribunals for uh, recuperating remedy. So that was the issues on the international arbitration clause. And I keep telling this to our clients. You need an arbitration clause to protect your company. So that's basically it. 
Interesting. It's kind of like when you used to watch one of those old cop shows back in the day and the first cops were there and they were trying to investigate the scene and another group of cops rolls up on it and says, hey, this is our crime scene. You get out of here. You know, you don't have jurisdiction here. (laughs) Right. So so it reminds me of that when you obviously on a much more. And I can only imagine how complicated that gets, because not only are the laws different in different regions. Right. But the languages are different and the cultures are different. And I'm sure that has to play out and how the legal remedy is ultimately solved because of all those differences. Correct. That's correct. It's also, you know, culturally, you know, in arbitration, it's a lot more formal, a lot more cordial versus where you see the United States just beating down their throats and being very, very aggressive. That's a no-no when you're sitting in front of an arbitration tribunal uh, in Switzerland, for instance. They expect, you know, a firm argument, but very respectful. So that's a cultural nuance that I myself have got to, you know, remember to keep in mind after a couple of decades of doing this. When you're, sure. you're arguing a different culture, you really have to do as Romans do. And that's one particular nuance that us U.S. trained attorneys need to remember to kind of hold back and you know, remember the manners matter. And so it's very important to maintain a cordial, collegial approach to approaching the arbitration tribunal in other jurisdictions. That'll take you a, fur- a lot further away than being aggressive. Understood. Don't argue too aggressively during somebody else's siesta time. That's right. Yeah, right. That's correct. <laughs> Particularly in Spain. Right. Absolutely. It's been. But at the same time, when you go to arbitration, you don't get to have the objection rules of evidence that we have here in the United States. Like you have hearsay objections, you have relevancy objections. You see them in, even in movies. Sometimes in movies, it says objection, your honor, and you yell that out. And then here it goes, the soft opera and, uh, and the entire drama that's going around the action that happened here. Uh, no, in arbitration, there's no objection. There's most of the time there's no objection unless it's stated under the contract. They're using the federal rules of civil procedure and evidence um, under the arbitration. But otherwise, the only thing you can do is just sit down and listen to cross-examination and direct examination. Got it. And David, you brought up something when you first talked that I thought was interesting. The privacy issue of this, you know, I can imagine that there are many businesses and companies that get into lawsuits that are cross border that at the end of the day, you know, if your name is smeared in a bunch of lawsuits and it ultimately becomes public, there's an element of reputational risk. If, even if you're not a bad actor, people saying, hey, I don't know that I want to do business with these people. Look at all the lawsuits that they're in. Right. So, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, the alternate dispute resolution EDRs uh, tend to be more private in those sectors. And what's really beneficial for companies who go to ADR is that they're not exposed to state courts in public hearing. Because, you know, in Florida, and certainly under the Constitution, everybody has a right to a public hearing, including companies. And therefore, actually, that exposed them to certain bad naming and also the reputation can hurt indirectly for doing businesses. And I want to give you one great example. Actually, I had, uh, I used to work with my father before becoming an attorney and uh, we were actually exporting, importing uh, goods from uh, China and actually furnishing cruise lines, uh, Norwegian cruise lines, Carnival cruise lines at the time. And of course we had disputes, of course we had problems, but the problem is that it brought it into state court. And now when we wanted to go to retail stores industry, they were Googling our company and they found out, oh, we had a lawsuit against Norwegian Cruise Line. And now they started starting questioning about what happened. Why is such a hospitality company having lawsuits with a provider here? And it's not the only lawsuit we had. We had also a lawsuit with Carnival and we had a lawsuit with other things. So what's happening is that now the company is having a reputation that it's getting into trouble all the time. So that's why uh, with an arbitration, they wouldn't have that access to see those cases. They may have limited access to see them, but it's not going to pop up on Google, for example. So it's going to be really hard to find them. You have to really fish for them to find those, uh, those cases under an arbitrational clause and under an arbitrational proceedings. So that's why I say it's, it's really, really important for companies to understand that arbitration, it is an alternative dispute resolution. And sometimes it's more beneficial for the companies to go to arbitration in order to protect their names. Certainly when you look at Tesla, for example, Tesla used to have a lot of lawsuits against their employees for uh, worker composition. And now Tesla implemented an arbitration clause because it doesn't want to have that reputation anymore. They want to hide them and they don't want to have to give access to, uh, to state court. 
it's correct because what happened next is that the company is actually losing a lot of money through the attorney's uh, fees and cost through a state court, which is a lot slower than the process of cases and arbitration is a lot faster. And then they can actually keep their reputation among, the, among themselves during the proceedings. So they can centralize the proceedings. It's not necessarily, again, to try to stop the people from, you know, to file a lawsuit against Tesla, but it's true that it can be a problem sometimes, such as if you file it, an individual has to file an arbitration against a company, it can be prejudicial in the source because it's expensive. You have to pay for the arbitrators. You have to pay for the lawyers. Sure. You have to pay for everything else. But between company transacting among each other, that should be no brainer. That's where, where I'm coming from. Understood. Understood. Look, I don't think anyone has ever uttered the words before that an attorney cost me too much extra money and wasted too much of my time. That's never happened before, has it? <laughs> of course no not. <laughs> no big deal. Hey, so Santiago, like you've been doing this for two decades. You're board certified. You know, you've seen probably, I don't want to say everything there is to see at this point, you know, because we can always learn yeah. something new every day. But just super curious, out of all the fields of study that you could have picked or all the disciplines in law, how did international law become your focus? Well, that's an interesting background. I'm the son of a uh, CIA foreign intelligence officer. I grew up in uh, right near Langley, near headquarters. And of course, I found out my dad worked there when we had to drop him off there. There's a big sign on the GW Parkway that says CIA headquarters next right. <laughs> you know, there's no hiding it anymore. I knew my dad was uh, worked for the CIA. My mom was over at Georgetown and she also, while she was working at Georgetown, which is just down the river from there, if you know DC, she was also in the CIA for a limited project. And I found that out about five years ago. So there was a time for both my parents to work with CIA. So I grew up in this international, uh, you know, kind of intelligence field. Uh, my dad always, you know, we'd watch James Bond movies and whatnot. And I just thought that was always really interesting to travel and to learn different cultures. You know, it's maybe it's not as uh, glamorous as they, they show on, on TV, but that certainly from a very early age exposed me to the uh, international world. And that's what piqued my interest in. You know, I went through school, I you know, got a master's in foreign affairs, and I wanted to take it a step further and apply that and to go in international law, which I didn't really know was an area that existed. The business side of things, I didn't want to necessarily get into the government, what's called public international law, but I do what's called you know, private international law, enforcing contracts, putting deals together around the world. So it was kind of an offshoot of that interesting background that I had with my dad being the CIA. That is super interesting. Yeah, I can't say that I've ever met anyone before with a master's in foreign affairs. I mean, leaning into it in that way almost predisposes you to say, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I've I've already been in touch with this world. I understand it a little bit. This is just the next logical step. So that's right. That makes a lot of sense. And so has it been everything that you've wanted it to be, you know, the the expansion of what you the foundational years? Well, it has. It certainly allowed me a great deal of travel. We've had some really interesting cases around the world. Uh, we had this really interesting case, uh, arbitration case against the Republic of Kyrgyzstan, where I had to serve the Republic of Kyrgyzstan, our law firm, and in, you know for uh, the misappropriation of one of our clients' assets, they had a bank in Kyrgyzstan. That was under a bilateral treaty. We went, it was at The Hague in the Netherlands. It was like, uh, you know, really, really interesting. And uh, it's a very intellectual exercise. Everything's done on paper. And, uh, you know, the exchange of papers and different arguments. And ultimately, we did prevail against the Republic of Kyrgyzstan. And I thought that was a really interesting, uh, really interesting case. Uh, something my father probably did more, you know, more clandestine, but I was able to do and bring justice to my client in a more public way. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Davey, if you don't mind, how did you end up in this field? Of all the things you could have done, how did you end up doing this? My great grandfather, uh, Jack Mitrani at the time, was uh, barred in Istanbul, Turkey. He was barred also in Switzerland, and he was barred in Israel. So uh, technically, he was um, he was at the time actually Israel was uh, uh, declaring very independence, and that's who he represented with Golda Meir to the UN. He actually uh, gave the independence to Israel, and it was actually the advisory advisory council one of the, one of them at least. And uh, he actually got the independence of Israel to actually be independent and represent them at the UN. So what happened next is that I started getting to like an interesting field of uh, international law. Certainly my international background, because I come from Switzerland. 
have also a lot of families around the world, from Israel to Turkey to uh, to England. Uh, they're all spread out throughout the world. And then at the same time, I speak different languages. So that just kind of brought me to that perspective that maybe I should use my international background in the legal field in a certain ways that could be more beneficial to all clients. So no, I, I have, um, I'll have also been also, like Santiago said that his father was in the CIA. Uh, back when I was in high school, actually, I was, I was actually recruited to be one of the trainees of the CIA, non, the first non-American who was a European only to attend uh, the training at the CIA at the Trinity College in Washington, D.C. under the Bush administration. And only, I think it was only 20 students out of 2,000 or 4,000 applicants were allowed with a full scholarship to go to D.C. and start doing their seminar training over the summer. And um, or fortunately, whatever, how you're going to look at it, I couldn't follow through with this because uh, my green card was denied when I was in college. So I couldn't continue to go through the CIA training and stuff like that and continue to do all these uh, uh, these seminars and, and also, also be possibly recruited right after college. That was the that was the ultimate goal. So at the end of the day, that's when uh, my father says, go to law school and become an attorney. And then I said, I'll become an international lawyer. That's even better. <laughs> so that's yeah. where uh, it came, I came from. It was in the family a little bit. You were kind of following the footsteps. It was in the family. Well, both of you guys had it in the family. I mean, that was the international cross borders thing. That was just what was normal to you growing up. It was kind of a standard deal, you know? So I think that's rare. I don't think everybody has kind of a uh, at home when they're born and raised. For me, like my parents certainly weren't. They didn't cross the state of Florida borders, much less international borders. So it was a very, very different exposure that I had. So I understand. No, right. And now, now, since everything, now, as you see, with the issues in Ukraine is affecting everybody. So every global issues that's been happening, even the pandemic, is actually affecting everyone locally as well. So we now we're so interconnected with other countries and other um, nationalities that it just, like now, the, all the affairs of foreign affairs are globalized and there's no way to escape it anymore. Every product that's coming from the United States is coming from China. Or sometimes they come from Uzbekistan or outside the country because we try to manufacture them due to the pricing. Or maybe sometimes there are, you know, like investment or investors that want to diversify your investment. They want to go outside the U.S. and, and try to invest in real estate close to the border of Ukraine and help Ukrainian refugees to house them over there. So you have like a really international community. And I think I cannot think more of in the state than Florida was even more an international state than any other state so far besides New York. So that's why that's actually Florida is a growing state. It's catching on to New York now because now since the pandemic has affected New York tremendously, all the people from New York are coming down South Florida. So you have more global companies that are even moving down South Florida, making even more Florida the, the chair of arbitration, international arbitration, international disputes or one of the heads out there. Understood and agreed. You know, for the longest time, I'm from Florida, born in Florida, Florida native, as far as you can go back for the longest time. You know, a lot of people thought I was a dumb Southerner. Turns out now I just happen to be early. I was way ahead of the curve. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But I, I think you bring up a really good point. You know, I think in the past couple of years with COVID and the international response to a global pandemic and now like the invasion in Ukraine and how that's messed up energy supply chains, you know, I don't think we're always as conscious about the goods and services that we purchase, how they're internationally connected and that it takes an international business cross borders network to to do that. But I think that's become super obvious to a lot more people how, you know, maybe it's it's almost analogous to the butterfly effect a little bit. Can you right. to that, San Diego? Well, a lot of people didn't know what supply chain was before the pandemic. <laughs> All of a sudden, when, when you need toilet paper, you quickly learn the word supply chain, right? And these kinds of essentials. And we had no idea why, of all things, is it toilet paper that people are rushing to? It was, you know, now I understand the supply chain, where paper comes from. We all kind of ignore the fact that we show up to the grocery store and things are just there magically. You have yeah. little elves at night that just you know, pack everything and restock it at night. But everything comes a long way. They have no idea that there's every link in that global supply chain is vital important. If that one link is broken, 
then the whole thing collapses, as we've seen with the, the chip manufacturers, with car dealerships and the car industry, uh, electronics. So it goes from toilet papers all the way up to something sophisticated as, as, as chips. Everything is become involved and tied to the supply chain. We all remember when that ship got caught in the Suez Canal and exacerbated things because yep. now it blocked things by a week. We know the port in Long Beach was backed up with ships sitting out there for a long time, sitting with all our supplies that we need for everyday living. It's only during the pandemic that we all began to realize that a lot of the stuff, most of the stuff comes from somewhere else, some other country, which other laws govern and things. Yep. So I think the pandemic has really put things in the forefront in terms of how global things really are. Whether you live in uh, Boise, Idaho, it's here we are. It, it's going to affect you. Sure, sure. So here's a question, and you yeah. guys are on the front lines of this. Um, you know, there's been, it feels like from my perspective, and I'm clearly an outsider, that there's been a push to, if we can bring it back to U.S. soil, we bring it back and we do it domestically so that we have a little bit more, the cost may be higher, but paying a higher cost and having control of your supply chain is, it's a balancing act, right? So right. what's that? And I'm sure that that type of decision doesn't happen overnight. So what are you seeing on that front? What's happening? And is it really moving that way? Well, we're seeing a lot of, at least down here locally, Miami particular, warehousing, commercial real estate has boomed. We're, still, we're out here near the Everglades. Those outer ends, fringes of the Everglades are now being developed to house warehouses. Amazon went from, during the pandemic, from maybe two or three warehouses to, I don't know how many now, just locally. So a lot of companies are thinking ahead of time and, and now providing a lot of inventory to create a buffer between the next time something like this happens, they'll we'll have some inventory where before we did it, you know, build it, you know, as fast as you can, only when the need arised it. I know, for instance, Dell, for instance, you would only manufacture when the order was placed, but you can't operate like that anymore. You need to stock up, have warehouses in place to create that buffer now in case there is a kink in the supply chain. You're able to service your clients at least for a couple of weeks or maybe some months. That's going to give you enough of a heads up to kind of, bring, you know, restore the supply chain, restore things as so, you know, would look at the end as if it never happened. So I'm seeing a lot of warehousing and uh, the prices of land in terms of industrial areas have really shot up as a result. So I am seeing it locally. Sure, sure. Um, Davey, did you have an opinion on that? Well, here's, uh, here's the thing about the United States in terms of our uh, global markets. If the U.S. is independent, most of the economy around the world is going to completely be destroyed. The United States is one of the biggest consumers of, out of all countries in the world. The U.S. is one of the biggest uh, country in terms of consumers. And if the U.S. is actually starting to be more independent, then actually there's no trades around there. And it's starting to be actually internalized everything else. So we have also that problem as well, because if the U.S. is independent, then how the country is actually going to be in economic in shambles with them? Now, some people may say, but that's not our problem. That's their problem. But it can become our problem because we cannot supply everything in the country. Some some crops, agricultural crops to cottons to uh, technology, certain things that we do not have uh, does exist in other countries that we need to bring it on to the United States in order for us to develop over time. But if you start doing uh, too much containing the U.S. at, at a certain point where we're, we're so independent and we don't need anybody else, then first, of course, the price will rise. But also as well, you're going, you're going to create an issue of other countries of being in a non-economical well-being. Per se, and also as well, it's the what we have also with the retailers, certainly, certainly with retail stores, is that they don't want to increase the price per pieces. So basically, what's happening is that when you create something here in the United States, the goods is only expensive because the labor is more expensive. But when you have China who's devaluing their their currency, and the, the yen is currency is actually completely devalued and do it on purpose so they can actually export even more and be combative in terms of, you know, trading. So now it's pushing all the retail stores to order from China for instead of buying for 100,000 pieces, like at $500,000 that would be here in the United States, they'll pay for like $250,000 in China and pay the expenses on the cost. 
on for trading. Now we have a, a problem with shipping cost, which actually comes into the terms. But sometimes uh, what we used to do when I used to work in my father's company is that we had an agreement with the manufacturers in China that tend to cover it sometimes. Those uh, those shipping costs. So if we order as much, they cover the cost of shipping, and it comes over here FOB. So that's where my international trade expertise tend to actually come in place because I, I understand also the INCO terms of international trade under the UCC Article Two when uh, we have litigation international trade law. So this is a really an aspect that the United States need to take into account. Certainly, not the U.S. dollars almost became as much more valuable. Than the euros recently on the forex exchange, and this actually shift in markets can be problematic because now Europeans they're not going to come here. It's more expensive for the tourists to come here to bring the economy up in the United States and buy goods from the United States. So they might as well stay in Europe and buy them from there. It's a lot cheaper over there. So now you have that issues of with also the investors. The investors actually, I want to talk about. One more thing about regarding Ukraine, the the Russian oligarchs.、Um, morally, the fact that the United States took over the the property of Russian oligarchs, morally, I would be okay with it. But in the legal aspects, to do this with that due process of laws, kind of like lose the confidence of also outside investors that are not Russian. To actually invest in the United States and say, "Whoa, the United States can do a government misappropriation without due process of laws." So that's another problem that we're facing here in the United States now. Now we actually losing confidence of other foreign investors to come around the United States. Not as much, not as much, but we sort of are showing that the United States government can misappropriate goods without having an opportunity for a hearing before we do so. So, and this is、uh, this is really tremendously important、uh, for the United States to keep the balance of trying to get the confidence of the foreign investors to come around here and invest. And by doing what we're acting like Europeans countries have done, we're losing those confidence of foreign investors. That's all I had to add. Understood. You know, I've. Look, I don't think any political system is is perfect, right? They're all flawed in all the ways we do business and our governments and everything. And we often hear it referred to in regards to the United States. It's how we do business. Is maybe we're the least dirty shirt in the laundry, right? So it's not a perfect world. I don't think any of us are living in a perfect world. We're making the best out of a bad situation most times. Is what we're doing, you know. And it's funny. I read an article the other day on a Russian oligarch that had his. Uh, his yacht seized, like a fifty、yeah. million dollar yacht or something, and they were going to auction it off. And I'm thinking, what person would be brave enough to buy a Russian oligarch? <laughs> There's only so many places you can park that thing, and、right. the odds are that guy's still going to be in those circles. And that guy shows up with his entourage one day, he's like, "Hey, that's my boat." That's right. <laughs> that's true. I didn't think about that, but yeah. I'm like、yeah. I want no part of that conversation. <laughs> that's not going to go down.、Well. Yeah, I'll move on to another boat. You can have it. Yeah, you can have that boat. Yeah. Oh, you want your boat back? You can have your boat back. Yeah. No. That's a very good practical point. I did not consider. Yeah. Right. So just because you could doesn't mean you should. Sometimes you have to、That's、think、right. a little bit. Right. Interesting points on that. So you brought up、um, and another point that I thought about real quick when you mentioned that is you know you talk about the relationship that countries have and the way that they do business and interact and if they're too independent that it makes them、um, not play well with others. Right. And it doesn't work well and it's not good for the global economy. Well, that's really not much different than a human relationship. Right. If a man or a woman or a friend is so independent, like people get tired of hanging out with them, or nobody wants to date them, right? Because they、right. they just don't ever want to do it anybody else's way. So、yeah. it's, it would make sense that it's you know a country is just a collective of humans,、mm-hmm. not much different that way, right? Yeah.、Uh, well, it also helps also in the political aspect. Sometimes we have allies like、uh, Canada, and we have products that are coming in outside of Canada as well into the U.S. So if we start by saying to Canada, "I don't want to trade with you anymore," <laughs> let's see how we're going to take that. <laughs> so that's、right. also another way to keep relationship close to the、uh, good countries, our allies around you.、Uh, certainly, in dire times where Russia is invading Ukraine, you need allies now. So it's not, we don't we don't need to make enemies anymore. Sure. So I would assume, but I want to ask. 
as political, um, as politics change in our country, and I don't can't say that I necessarily follow politics abroad mm-hmm. internationally, I really don't, yeah. unless it's big headlines and there's big optics around sure. it. But as our domestic politics changes, I would have to assume that has a major impact on what you do on a day-to-day in your business in allowing how cross-borders transactions and business can be affected. Santiago, can you speak to that? Well, you know, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is, for instance, climate change. We've got a big push in, here locally, politically, on climate change, and we want to spread that all over the world. We want to make it more expensive. For, for instance, if you're importing cars, it's got to meet this requirement to the EPA. Uh, for instance, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, importing them, they've, they've got to be street legal in the United States. They've got to be retrofitted. So the cost, the local politics, whatever we have going on here, it does affect what goes on globally. It, thinks, it makes things more expensive when you're talking about things like climate change. So that's when local government or domestic government can impact how things are done globally. And sometimes they don't think like that. They just think, well, we want, we want our country to be, have clean air without really thinking at least uh, the short-term uh, economic losses that may that may uh, accrue as a result of making things more expensive, more difficult for uh, to deal with in terms of compliance issues. Sure, sure, understood. I mean, look, uh, we all want a better environment, like, right. but that's a long-term good, and most people have a short-term thinking. So, you know, somebody having air conditioning when it's hot or heat when it's cold or power lights when it's dark and the ability to heat their food takes much more importance over the long-term ability of us to be, you know, green or whatever it potentially is. I think just this week, I think California mandated uh, all electric cars by 2035. Well, you may think 2035, that's around the corner. I'm old enough to know that time goes by pretty fast. And you can't possibly retrofit all these cars and make everything globally. This this is for all global manufacturers. If you're going to be selling in California or have a car in California, you've got to comply with this. There's, as you've read, a lot of pushback because it's a worthy goal, but I think it's just too short term, even though we're talking about 15 years from now. Yeah. Those things take a lot longer. I agree with that. And, you know, the other what fifth California in and of itself is like the fifth largest economy in the world. Right. That's true. So, I mean, that is a huge decision for them to ultimately make. And did anybody I mean, that that line in the sand sounds great from an optic standpoint. Sure. But, but the the ability to execute on that, has anybody thought that through? Can we really get there? Right. Right. It's aspirational more than anything. I would agree. Davey? Just uh, fun facts about California is that the, I think one of the very court of appeals actually ruled that the uh, bees are fish too to protect them. So now if you see a bee above a bee in California, it's considered fish under the legal procedures and legal definition. So that, that happened recently. <laughs> that happened recently. So it's uh, in, in the idea it's, it's that they're trying to be conserva- conservative to the bumblebees to save them from not being killed or some sort of like that. I, I didn't read the entire cases, but Right now, bees are fish, so we, we have flying fish in California going on, so that's why I say with a joke with everybody. Um, in terms of green energy, I had a discussion with a company that provides uh, green energy and tried to actually develop a way to be uh, sort of like renovate the energy, just coming back. What we do is that we take the waste, it's called waste management, waste to energy. So in that way, we're not going to use fossil fuel to uh, accumulate energy. It could be using by wind energy or it could be also electrical energy in certain ways to create electricity through currents of the water. And I asked them the question, and the simple question, how far are we from being independent from fossil fuel? And he said to me, we are decades away from being independent from fossil fuel. We're definitely not independent from fossil fuel. And as far as um, as an energy that can be reused and overused and overused uh, to produce, it would be an atomic nuclear energy. And a lot of people says yes, but that pollutes the entire environment. But that's the only type of energy that can be reused over and over is nuclear energy. That's all really a question that are we going too fast before we even are independent to, from fossil fuel? That's another problem that we're actually we're facing to, uh, with the political environment is that some uh, political parties are pushing for green energy, green energy, but we're not there yet. 
we need to be totally independent and we need to find the technology to bring us there. And then we can be independent from fossil fuel. But to be early on independent from fossil fuel, it's not going to happen. It, not now. And it will take time. It will take a lot of research. It will take a lot of investment. That's why we have a lot of investors that are going inside the United States to try to invest in the U.S. in alternative energy. And also we have investors that go on other countries that try to actually figure out a way to, you know, to develop something that could be replacing fossil fuel sometimes. So, and we're only are, I think we're only at the beginning because it just recently started to actually to have that type of ideas. Um, so, yeah, not right now. I think one day it will happen, but it will take a long time until we get there. Yes, I agree. And look, I happen to know a little bit about this. I attend um, some really big energy conferences a couple of times throughout the year that, you know, talk about in America, we are detached, right? We are shooting for this green target and it's become a political talking point and all this other stuff. But globally around the world, there are countries, you know, China, India have much larger populations than ours. They have massive amounts of population that have zero access to power. They don't care if it's green. They just want lights. They don't mm-hmm. care if it's green. They just want heat, you know, so they're going to burn coal and stuff. And we can't control what they do over there. And who are you to tell somebody in a country that doesn't currently have access to power? Oh, that you can't take that dirty power and use that dirty power because we did that at one point. That was mm-hmm. just 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. That's right. That's right. It's not our place to be the arbiter of that and make that decision. And Mm -hmm. and like you said, it's just an ambitious goal. I think it's a worthy goal and we should all strive towards that whole, you know, um, I'm a little bit older than you, I think, Davey, but I watched Star Trek growing up and, you know, it was a common goal. We had solved all the problems on Earth and we were going out and reaching out to other Mm -hmm. planets at that time. And for we're just not all on the same page yet. That may take a little while for us to get I love Star Trek, by the way. So let me ask a question. You know, I think this is on everybody's mind a little bit. These cross-border transactions and Mm -hmm. the currencies, you know, you talked about China devaluing their currency and the dollar potentially being stronger now than it has been and it being an import-export issue. How is cryptocurrency or alternative, uh, you know, that whole blockchain, how is that factoring into the international business landscape today? So what happened is that the crypto started with Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin was created under the, uh, the dark web for anonymous transactions and a way to make transactions a lot easier than having an intermediary party such as the bank in the middle and pay high fees for the transactions to transact to from one country to the other country. And uh, the idea of Bitcoin is to remain anonymous. And a lot of criminals back in the dark web was using this as a tool to actually buy drugs or illegal uh, narcotics, or it could be also weapons or anything that they want to do, even illegal services on the dark web. But there's one thing with crypto does really do well that unfortunately international transactions don't really do well. It's the speedy transactions. It's there's no the, the fees for transacting a Bitcoin is a lot lesser and a lot faster than actually transferring from one bank to the other bank. It would take you a couple hours to transfer, let's say, 2000 Bitcoins than actually having those 2000 Bitcoins valued to would be like probably around 500 to 600 thousand dollars. And you have to transfer this from bank to bank. That will cut take a couple of days. So that's the one pros uh, about cryptocurrency. Now, the, the cause of cryptocurrency is that it can get hacked. The blockchain can get hacked. Or in sometimes, uh, from my perspective, is that the address, when you, you transact with the address, you know, we have a hash called the MD5 hashes. Uh, those hashes, they actually are the address that we're sending the wallet to wallet. Um, it can just one mistake, and that's it. You lose your 2,000 Bitcoins on that address if you just... Uh, paste it wrong or, or, you know, because something could go wrong. You don't have a way to safeguard your money and remedy to the mistake. So sometimes that happens too. And also as well, the only thing with crypto is its volatility. So I don't know if you heard about recently about the SEC decision to make Bitcoin as a commodity 
and the rest of the cryptocurrency as a, secu- as a security. So now they're trying to differentiate Bitcoin saying it's like gold and silver. Bitcoin is like gold and silver. Meanwhile, it's not something you touch. It's not something physical. It's something that's within the blockchain in its own. But as well, like the other cryptocurrency are becoming like more security, meaning that now they're part of the regulation of the SEC. So now they have to file uh, the different documents and make sure they do their payments to the SEC and make sure they're regulated under the SEC. That's what we're striving for. And a lot of people are opposing this because the idea of cryptocurrency was to freely transact everywhere, anywhere you want. And that was the main idea. And how you make people interested on that transaction is that you increase the value of crypto based on how many people buy, it's just like stocks. And you're just increasing it so, so much that it becomes volatile. So for example, if you're buying 200 crypto out of 500, then the price will spike up tremendously. And then if that person sells the majority of cryptos out in the world, then you have like the Bitcoin one drop down to $10,000. So that's also another problem with crypto. It doesn't have a stability to stay within the price line. It will just stay like it can go up really fast and we can go back down and crashed to a single dollar. And one of them actually uh, that I saw that this to happen, it was Terra Luna. That was a cryptocurrency that was developing in Korea and it went up to $200 per coin. But the very next day, when all the investors decided to go away from this program, it went down to 0.0000000007. So imagine if you bought Terra Luna when it was back in value between $60 a coin or $200 a coin, then all of a sudden you lost everything. And there's also another problem with crypto. It's rug pull. A lot of scams in crypto and certainly with the YouTubers and streamers, um, what they're doing is that they're hyping a cryptocurrency to create, uh, one of them being CX coin. Um, and then what happens next, if they go to their fans, their millions of fans that are watching them and they say, I'm, I'm actually creating a coin and everybody believes in, in that coin and everybody put thousands and thousands of dollars. Before they do, those influencers, uh, YouTubers, they tend to actually invest, uh, let's say, $30,000 of that coin before they do. And then they actually advertise the coin and then the coin value goes up and they make four hundred to $500,000 on that coin. And they start doing a rug pull, meaning that they just sell it all, take their money, and everybody lose their money on the investment that they made on Coin based on the hype train or the belief that Coin would be successful. And, and that's the problem with cryptocurrency. There's a lack of regulation. And, that, and the issue is that when it's not falling under the SEC, normally such things under the SEC will be actually illegal to do. So the fact that this has been, doing, this has been going on there's no way to make this person like liable for any damages because cryptocurrency doesn't have regulations at the moment. So you have that problem too. So when you have the crypto coming up, the question you have to say is this crypto legitimized Bitcoin, like coin that will develop over time and you have to research, oh, what the company, what are we doing? What's the project? You have to look at the ICO, that we call ICO, the initial coin offer offering, I, I, I call it a, a paper, a white paper. Most of the time they, they, they think that's actually a legal document, but it's not. Um, ICO for me is just, uh, it's just like they're trying to imitate the, the IPOs, the initial public offering, which is for stocks. And it's not legitimized in some ways. Now, I'm not saying crypto is bad in any ways. It's another interesting way to transact in a faster way. My idea of crypto is this. Once you get it in your wallet, take it out immediately. Don't leave it there. Take out the money, transfer in dollars, and you're done. Because once the Bitcoin goes up or it goes down, whatever you had in that wallet can go turn back to zero. So that's the worriness of crypto. Sure, sure. Well, I've read, you know, so recently I read an article about a couple of young 30-something-year-old guys that 
caused a custodial arrangement to basically or a hedge fund to basically collapse for they said it could have caused a trillion dollars of contagion in the crypto or the currency market. Yeah. So to for me, you know, it's analogous to the internet in 1999, right? There was all these tech stocks, dot com, everything. Pets.com yeah. wasn't a tech company, but it was back then, right? right. I remember. Yeah. You remember that, right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I don't know if Davey does, but you it was and a sock I, puppet. It was a mascot. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, so the funny thing was, is everybody's like, "Oh, the internet's going to change the world," and the internet has changed the world in the way information shared, but it didn't change it in 1999. It took quite a few years beyond that for it to have real utility mm-hmm. and for us to really use it for business purposes. And I believe that crypto and blockchain are probably headed down that same path. But we're in the first half of the first inning on this right. game. And yes, there's a risk return profile, but the risk is not your coin going down in value. The risk is that your custodian steals it or your counterparty is not real. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so you could make a fortune and it just be stolen from you overnight and there's no regulation. So what are you going to do? Well, I want to say one more thing about crypto because uh, it's something that everybody have to know that the way utility could work best in, in crypto right now at the moment it's when actually, for example, you want to buy for a VPS server, which uh, you actually, I don't know if you know what a VPS server is. What's uh, a VPS, VPS server? It's a, it's a server. It's a server that you host somewhere else and you can use the Windows and you can connect through RDP from your computer to that server. And it can host your website. It can host a program. It can host everything else, but it's hosted somewhere else. It's not hosted in your whole country. It could be hosted sure. by a company. Uh, uh, for example, I think DigitalOcean has VPS servers for cheap. You can buy them and pay per month and you can use them. A lot of hackers actually are using them for the purpose of hacking. And then what they do is that they put in malicious programs on a VPS server without the hosting company to know about. And then all of a sudden they do the hacking real quick. And they, you know, if they are hacking like banks, they go against institutions most of the time and then they go away. So that's how crypto can be used because if you use crypto, then the hosting company has no record of who actually is renting the VPS server. So that's actually the criminal aspect of hosting, uh, of using crypto most of the time and remain anonymous. Now there's also the privacy aspects as well that could be really beneficial in case, for example, if Amazon start using Bitcoin and it gets hacked, then at least your bank account is safe. That's also the privacy aspect that has it's uh, it's it, on its own a really, um, really good aspect. But where I'm seeing crypto to evolve really fast, it's not necessarily in the United States. I don't. I, I think crypto will take a lot more time in the United States than Europe to develop over time, because Europe has a privacy laws or privacy laws under the GDPR that it's extremely, extremely well set up. And you have a right to your own information. So, for example, if you sign up for Facebook, right, when you put your first and last name on Facebook, you don't have that right of your information. Facebook owns that information from you. So if you want to be Facebook to forget you, you can't. Because now Facebook collected that information. They own that information. You cannot go away from it. In Europe, it's the reverse. Once you have Facebook and you want to get out of the information, you want Facebook to delete that information, not sell it to anybody, you have a right to do so. And in fact, it was a huge lawsuit of millions and millions of dollars against Facebooks in Europe and they lost because there's a right of owning your own information. That's the privacy rights that we do not have in the United States, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. at this point, I think crypto protects privacy. It does protect privacy. In the United States, Privacy is almost liberal, I would say, and everybody can own your information. So that's where I can see how crypto can develop a little faster in Europe than in the United States in some ways. So that's why we see a lot more hedge funds in Europe, a lot more of fintech companies developing cryptocurrency and being a broker exchange sort of of crypto like Coinbase and Crunchyroll and uh, OKCoins that are developed in Europe a lot faster than in the United States here. Uh, in some ways. But in terms of cross-border disputes, now if I bring in on cross-border disputes with cryptocurrency, um, we haven't, I haven't seen personally a case yet. I don't know if you have, Santiago, if you saw a case of cryptocurrency on cross-border disputes, international arbitration. I haven't seen one. No, not, not yet. Not yet. And I think it's going to come soon. 
it's going to come soon. At some point in time, it's going to be there. Yeah. We're going to see one. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. You know, look, I, I think the new wars and the new theft is becoming, it's digital, it's cybersecurity, right? And anything can be used for good or for evil. And unfortunately, you've got a bunch of bad actors that are in, there's some good people, but you've got bad actors in, in this stuff early, trying to take advantage of the mispricings of the marketplace or the the opaqueness, mm-hmm. the lack of understanding of what's going on out there, the more sophisticated taking advantage of the naive in an unregulated space, right? And we've seen that before in, in many other markets as they've developed, you know, over the years. And this is just, this is the forefront. This is where it's at now mm-hmm. is kind of the way I view it. So it's kind of a, you know, I have investors and people ask me all the time, should we be investing in crypto? I'm like, not if you can't, only money you can afford to lose, right? Right. Entertainment value. Right. Only money you can afford to lose. So with everything that's going on in the world today, and we, you know, we've been out of this about an hour and I try to keep these to about Mm -hmm. an hour just for everybody's bandwidth. But, um, you know, are there any headwinds coming at us like today, like from an international business standpoint with, you know, the political climate, you know, with supply chains or anything that you're seeing that is going to be a real issue or, you know, create a lot of work or a lot of opportunity? Because I always see, um, look, opportunity is created out of out of difficult times, right? There's right. always something that finds opportunity. So we are going through some difficult times in some ways. What are those times? Do you see some coming and is it going to create an opportunity? Well, I think the sophistication of the fraud, fraud has become very sophisticated in terms of how people uh, attack. Uh, we were just talking about bank accounts and, and in private information and exploit that and use it, whether it's ransomware. We've seen ransomware hold up factories. And these are people, malfeasors located in different countries, far away. As long as you get access over the main server, or whatever factory running here in the United States, if you're not careful, they're going to hold that factory ransom. They've done it to school districts, having to pay millions and millions of dollars. So the sophistication of fraud is really the number one threat I see to the U.S. economy in terms of you know everybody on the ground, all the small to medium to big businesses here really need to, uh, to have their cybersecurity initiatives in place and backup plans. So sure. to make sure that doesn't happen. If it does happen, have a contingency plan in place. Sure. And unfortunately, I've had a ton of cybersecurity training. One of the real Achilles heel of it is it's humans, right? So if you have a big organization and you have a ton of people and the wrong person clicks on the wrong link in a phishing scam or something, then that's the whole right. system is potentially compromised. That's exactly that's what they're counting on. So it takes education and training of everybody within the organization. And having yeah. backup systems to detect yeah. those kinds of things. It's a crazy new frontier. The the fight today, you know, it's not a it's not a bare knuckle fist fight out in the back behind the school behind the lunch right. room. You know what I'm saying anymore? It's I know how to hack into your computer and steal all your stuff, and you're not even going to know what's happened or steal right. your identity. I, right? I, I fell prey to a very innocent one um, where somebody uh, what they do is uh, imitate your email addresses. So I had a client, let's say a fake name, Robert Smith. They, at gmail.com, they put an extra I in the Smith. Who's going to notice that when you've been emailing back and forth? So they tell me, oh, why are the funds here? And I don't know how they got triggered, but sure enough, we, it was thankfully a small amount of money we got back. But they were able to just uh, replicate uh, and jump into my email and pretend to be somebody else with just a minor change of one letter. Yep. So people have to be really careful of that. It's very easy to fall into no matter how sophisticated you think you are. Again, yeah. I'm, a, I'm the son of a CIA guy, say, of an intelligence officer who fell for that. I feel really dumb. Uh, it, it happens. And we're so busy. It's not like you get yeah. three emails in the course of a day. I imagine you get hundreds of emails in the course of a day. So right. it's just, it's a balancing act between being able to get it all. Yeah, I had a client lose a substantial hundreds of thousands of dollars in a wire before. And now they're crazy about when the wire has to go out. That's how many right. times that information gets double or triple checked before somebody gets into that. I, so. I do the same. Totally understand. So, hey, I really appreciate you guys being here today. Any, Santiago, any closing thoughts, anything, any listeners to this podcast that we didn't cover that they should know? Well, I think the point about, you know, a lot of people in doing international transactions really missed the point about arbitration. I can't stress that enough, that instead of having had a litigation clause in international contracts, you include an international arbitration clause. It provides confidentiality, expediency, and is cost effective. If there's any tip I think to get away from here, is when doing international business, be sure including an international arbitration clause. Let me ask a follow-up question on that that I just kind of in my yeah. head. 
I would think to hire somebody to do international law if I had a problem with the way I was doing current business. What if I had a product or a service and I go, why aren't I doing business with customers internationally? Could engaging with an international law firm help me develop business strategy to expand cross borders? Absolutely. We could develop their distribution channels, help them with distribution agreements, trademarking the intellectual property across jurisdictions. Just because you have the United States doesn't give you intellectual property protection in all the other countries of the world. That's a really a, a major point. So absolutely, we can help them across uh, at least those two fronts. Good point. Good point. And okay. also, I also want to add something that is to Santiago's comments here. Um, I had a conversation with a potential client regarding a, uh, a company in a medical field, and uh, and his comments was that I would like to hire lawyers because I don't want to deal with the legal paperwork and analysis in the background. I don't have time for this. So we're taking off the weight from the company's shoulders by overlooking all the contracts, negotiating contracts, uh, providing NDAs, and also as well advising the client, see, we saw this, this, and this is of concern for us. And also drafting contracts for them as well. So that's exactly where we're coming from in terms of perspective of international law, where we can advise the client based on the legislation, the laws of the country, and also uh, draft a, a legal memorandum where we need to actually advise when how to make a, a country more investor friendly. So we're taking that weight of problems off the shoulder of the company instead of dealing with boring legal contracts, legal technical jargon. They should be dealing most of the time about their business outlook and uh, and develop their business abroad than dealing with all the technical jargon and uh, and the issues that can bring on their business down. So that's why we always advise to hire a law firm when actually they deal with uh, international transactions. Sure. Well, it's one thing to know kind of what you should be doing or it's another thing to know how to actually get that done, right? So the blocking and tackling of it. So very good. Thanks for sharing. Well, guys, I really appreciate you coming today. This was amazing. I think it was great information, not only for me. I think the listeners are going to benefit from it as well. Um, but today we had two attorneys on the call, international business attorneys. We had Davey Carcasson and Santiago Cueto from the Cueto Law Group. Um, I appreciate you guys being here. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Matt. Appreciate it. It's Absolutely. Fun. And all the links to all the contact information and the listeners today, when you find this podcast online, everything will be below it. Their direct contact information for their firm. So you'll be super easy to find. And uh, once again, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise. So sure. once again, for today, this was another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. This is Matt Chancy signing off. Until next time, take care. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 